Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Hannah Thorsby. Hannah's career has spanned the breadth of creative disciplines, from fine art to branding, marketing, design, packaging, animation, and more recently, internal communications. And this is where she has found her true passion and purpose. She founded H&H in 2011 with her business partner, Helen, blending behavioural psychology, strategic thinking with creativity to positively transform the way people communicate, connect and interact in organisations to improve employee experience. They are a leader in internal communications and employee engagement, partners to many well-known global brands and proud to have been voted Best IC Agency 11 years in a row. Thank you, Hannah. I'm so excited to um, speak to you today. Uh, we've known each other for a while now, and I'm just really excited to to get into your um, your secret resume, your story and your history, and how you've uh, developed and running your agency, which you've been doing since uh, 2011, H&H. I just want to, to let, shall we just start with a little bit about what H&H is? And yeah. then we'll go right back to the beginning and talk about how did you get there in the first place? <laughs> okay. Um, so, hi Mel, it's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, H&H is an internal communications and employee engagement agency. We work with global brands to um, help them enhance their employee experience and um, communicate, you know, in engaging ways with their people to, yeah, to, to really kind of ensure that the working world is the best it can possibly be so everybody feels valued and appreciated. Brilliant. Thank you. So let's go right back in time. <laughs> We've got to, to where you are now. Tell me about how it all began. We talked a little bit before this. Tell me a bit about your family, your upbringing, you know, the influences that were on you at that time. Yeah, it's been really fascinating to reflect back because it's not something I do very often. I'm I'm definitely a forward-looking person and very rarely do I look back. But um, it's been quite been wonderful actually to to think back on what has brought me here today and to appreciate really the, the people that have influenced me along the way and the decisions that I've taken and um, choices that I've made and to realize that actually I can be very grateful for that um, I, it's good to be in the position that I'm in now but it's not always been easy so yeah. <laughs> a little <laughs> reminder and appreciation for the journey has been good um, but yes so I I've been very lucky to be part of quite a big family and I have parents who instilled from me very early on a, a, a working appreciation for hard graft for work and um, although in very different ways. So my mum is somebody who, you know, raised four children whilst working as a nurse, which is very demanding work, whilst running a household in the absence of my father who worked overseas. Um, he was in the oil industry, so he was quite often um, absent from the family home. And I lived in Cardiff in Wales for 10 years, first 10 years of my life. And she, I just observed every day her 
energy, her commitment to keeping everything running smoothly and obviously handling four very, very hyper kids. <laughs> so she instilled a great, you know, a great sense of we all need to work hard. My dad is a very logical father. He's um, very hugely intelligent, very factual, logical, processy kind of person who values topics, uh, who values um, physics, mathematics, economics, you know, these um, hugely intellectual pursuits. And whilst my elder brother and sister both kind of fall into that camp somewhat, um, their, their brains are wired similarly. Myself and my younger brother were the contrast to that, were the more creative minds. And I think that comes from my mum's side of the family that does have a, a quite a strong sense of creativity running through it. There are, you know, I know that my grandma wrote poems. I My auntie Dot was a China painter. You know, you can see where there has been a history of creativity running through the genes. And my younger brother and I definitely picked that up. So I've I'm not going to say I was a disappointment to my dad, but he found that difficult to grasp and to appreciate and to understand where I was coming from. So whilst he has always encouraged me to pursue the maths, the economics, the physics, because it would lead to a good steady career with a good income and, you know, that would um, see me well in life. My whole being just screamed against that path because I'm not wired for that kind of thinking. It just it's uncomfortable. I try and step into that logic, logical thought process, processing and problem solving. And that's where I run into difficulties because I can't concentrate for long enough. My brain flits off into flights of fancy and imagination and, you know, all sorts of thoughts um, that distract me, basically. So as much as I try to fit into that mould throughout my GCSEs and A-levels to please to please my my father mainly not my mum but my father it was never going to lead to happiness for me so I when I chose my A-levels and my degree path and I spoke to my dad about it and I said you know I'd like to kind of go do fine arts I'd like to pursue maybe design as a career he said to me no 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 he said I know you don't want to be doing that arty farty crap. That is never gonna that's never gonna get you anywhere. You know, you'll never make any money. And it's just too no, you don't want to do that. Get yourself down and do your maths. And I think at that point when I looked at him and he kind of said that to me, I took that then as an opportunity to prove him wrong. Oh. It was almost like he put a challenge on the table. It was like he'd, you know, it fueled me. It kind of caused me to react in a way as if to say, right, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you what this passion that I've got, this this need to channel my creativity to every day to channel this somewhere. I'm going to prove to you that this is that it's possible to make this something. And that was it. And that has fueled me every day since to prove him wrong. And I don't know what that says about me. I'm not sure what that says about me as a personality and as a character, but um, but yeah, I I thank him for that. To be honest, you know, yeah. did it cause like arguments between you? The fact, like for your A levels, you did art, presumably. Yeah. Did it cause arguments about what you were going to do? Thankfully, not. And and I think once he realised that I was adamant that this was going to be a path I was going to pursue, he has always he has always supported me in that. Um, he bought me my first computer, which you know opened up the 
my graphic design world, the digital design world, massively made it possible for me to learn the ropes. So he has supported me in it. But I just think for quite some years, he quietly observed and thought, yeah, I told you it was going to be hard, you know, and it was hard. It was really hard. Um, Art, I kind of knew instinctively that fine art was going to be an uphill battle, you know, to break into that market and make yourself a successful fine artist is a huge Mm. undertaking and And when you say fine art that's for those of us who are not in that world that means you know becoming an artist as you know selling your pictures that's where that would lead you yeah exactly so you know being a painter a sculptor a you know a installation artist whatever mm-hmm. you really need to establish yourself as a brand and and to be honest a totally blank canvas with no brief or anything to work to in order to put something on that canvas I find that incredibly daunting that intimidates me so when I started to enter into the world of graphical graphic design where there is a brief to respond to there is a problem being solved there is something requiring a response a a creative response that's where I found my neurons firing that's where I found my passion kicking in that's where I found myself moving forward and coming up with ideas and and it really kind of sparked off all sorts of thoughts and possibilities and and it's within that realm that I find myself really comfortable and really in my flow Mm -hmm. so I think yeah problem solving with creativity is definitely where I'm happiest and so did you start discovering that when you're doing your a-levels is that more when you started going because you went on then you did a art foundation was that when you started realizing that what you know when did you make that kind of oh it's this that really gets me going so a-level art was your typical kind of art, it was drawing, painting, um, sculpture, those kind of things. So it was in Art Foundation that we experienced a kind of briefing. Actually, I tell a lie. I remember now, when I was at school and it was time to do work experience, I went to a design studio that my my mum's sister, my auntie, was working at at the University of Hull. She very kindly, as a lot of people do tend to do in families, is call upon friends and, and family to, to find these opportunities. But she gave me the chance to come into a design environment, a design agency, and spend a week experiencing what goes on in a design you know capacity and they gave me a a, there was a barbecue they were hosting at the university on the grounds of the university and I was asked to produce the poster and some cards oh and I had the best time I was in my element I had the choice of fonts and I had you know I was I remember designing a font that was made out of sausages to go (laughs) onto a skewer to promote this this event and it was quite manual back in them days you know now we've got computers it's all done you know super quick back then everything was cut out pasted stuck photographed you had bromides the bromides went to the printers went on the press you had films you had you know it was so it was such a kind of intense process that required a lot of manual intervention and actually creation And I was just, I loved it. I loved it. And from that experience, I just went, this is what I would like to do. This is my calling. This is definitely makes me happy. So I left. 
it shows how important a, a work experience can be for kids. I, yeah. I've talked about this on other podcasts about how we expect children to know what they want to do when they don't know what all the different jobs are. Well, no one does, right? I've been exactly. you know, in consulting for over 20 years and I still don't know what all the different jobs are. I'm constantly surprised and they're all new ones coming up as well. But how amazing that that really put you on a particular path. You try it on for size, don't you, really? Yes. I mean, otherwise you're just considering it and thinking maybe it would be right for me. I don't know, you know, but the minute you step into it and experience it firsthand and it strikes all the right chords, then there you go. Yeah, becoming massively influential. Do you know what that also makes me think about? Because so much work experience can just be really boring photocopying as well, can't it? They gave you something to do that you could own. And I think that really makes me think about how if we're going to have people doing, you know, internships, work experience, that the power of actually giving somebody something meaningful to do yeah. rather than just using them as a unpaid photocopying oh, clerk. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to you've got to see the you've got to feel like what you're doing has um, is accountable in some way is going to actually make a difference. Well, for me anyway, I've I've discovered this, and I, I agree with what you're saying. I think a kind of theoretical approach or a practice project that you know is never going to see the light of day almost kind of steals my sucks your soul a little bit because mm. you're like what's the point I just think what's the point this is going to come away so it doesn't yeah. you don't get that intensity of um, motivation coming through you don't get the yeah you don't have that sense of urgency or that need to impress or as much anyway you know yeah. I think for me that came through in university as well because I went to university to to study graphic design and actually this was in the years when it was 92 I went to university they had just invented media studies as a degree mm. and it's loads of people take the piss out of media studies now as a degree because it was deemed to be a bit of <laughs> bit of everything watching <laughs> yeah watching telly and chatting <laughs> about films um but but for me it was it was offered to me because it was a brand new course that included graphic design but it also opened up the opportunity to experience radio journalism television films a lot of areas around media that I thought well actually before I limit myself here into one path let me explore that too so yes yeah, so I entered into it with a very open mind but I quickly realized that education that particular way of learning as in let's study theory, let's, um, you know, undertake practice projects. It's just not the best environment for me in which to actually progress or feel like I'm moving forward. Exactly what we're just saying, it needs to be real life situations. I need to be doing something that is actually going to, is a live, real, in the moment, you know, challenge. So I struggled with the universe. I struggle with the educational environment it's like a sandpit isn't it it's like it's like you're practicing what you might do in the real world I find that really difficult I'm not motivated by that it seems pointless and really for me it's not about gaining knowledge I like to experience things I experience things kinesthetically it's not done intellectually I, I feel things I, I muddle through things by following my guts by listening to my body and I learn through doing the actual real experience. So, But it sounds like it needs to be real as well. It's not just that kinesthetic, it's that having a real outcome as well. 
being answerable and seeing the impact mm-hmm. and actually having the accountability of people, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. So so university, I very quickly became disillusioned by, disheartened, you know, lost my way a little bit. And in at the end of my first year at university, I went traveling. I got the opportunity, actually. Somebody said in one of a, a drunken Friday night, oh, should we go travel the world? You know, as trail finders have put a really good offer on the table, you know. And I thought, yeah, why not? It was meant to be three and a half months. It was eight major stops around the globe. And I thought, well, no reason not to. I've got no excuse not to. So um, hopped on a plane, set off to do this three and a half months to get back in time for the beginning of the second year. And actually it extended six months. And it absolutely opened my mind, opened my experiences. I just, yeah, I realised there's a whole wide world out there to go explore. What an adventure it was. So you can imagine when I got back for my second year, how how um, completely I'd lost all interest in it, really. I was, I wanted to get out there. I wanted to go prove myself. I wanted to go put my mark on the world, as it were. So returning back into that safe environment and into that place where I didn't feel like I was really kind of progressing or growing in the way I wanted, it meant that after my end of my second year, which I limped through, I just walked away from that world. I stepped out of university. I wanted to go, I wanted to go start my career. That was it. I was dying to get going You'd have enough. <laughs> yeah I don't do a bit of learning so let's just apply it all now let's go let's go no more learning for me I'm done <laughs> okay so that then took you to a marketing agency yeah it did how did you come to start doing that so because I'm quite action oriented I've been doing a lot of design work on the side during my university years. Um, I've been commissioned to produce branding for a new products that I knew somebody was launching. I was I was designing tape covers for a local radio. It was a pirate radio, actually, that were producing mixtapes, and I was doing all of the covers. <laughs> That's right. That really does age you, though. <laughs> really does, doesn't it? <laughs> I was doing posters for events, and I was doing adverts for a local magazine. So I was... I had a portfolio of work to demonstrate what I could do. So I looked up all of the local design agencies and I started applying um, for jobs. Not that they were advertising particular roles. I just wrote to them anyway and said, I'm looking for for work. Um, Can I come show you my portfolio? And my auntie, who I mentioned, who got me my work experience, had launched, moved out of the university and launched her own agency called MW a couple of years before. For me... I knew that that was that she was doing that, but it wasn't an option for me in my mind at that point because that would be too easy. And I actually didn't want to put the pressure on her of asking her and her feeling obliged to give me a job because mm-hmm. of family. So I steered well clear of that. And I wrote out to all the other agencies. And she caught wind of it, obviously, through through my mum and through family and got in touch with me and kind of said, what's going on? Why would you go anywhere else other than to join me and I said well because you know that's just you don't have to be nice you know you don't have to just be a job I don't mind I much prefer to go find my own way and, and challenge myself over here but she was quite quite convincing quite adamant I genuinely thought when I sat and chatted to her and she set out what she was offering me I thought yeah she she does actually value what I'm doing appreciate what I've got to offer and was also very charitable with me you know she it was about giving me an opportunity um, and I'm forever grateful about that and to be honest it was the best move I could have made because her and I get on 
absolutely brilliantly. We get on like a house on fire. We have so much in common. And we had 13 years of fun. I mean, we laughed. We have had moments where we've been crying with laughter together. And I think that's really important. In It has been in my working career anyway, all the way through. Fun, laughter, enjoyment has to be part and parcel of it, you know, because to get through the hard times, you need you need that fuel in you, don't you really? And there's a lot of challenging times. But Mary and I worked together for 13 years and she taught me a great deal, a huge amount of on the job because because I didn't learn the theory, <laughs> didn't stick around to do all of that. She obviously had to teach me quite a lot and she taught me brilliantly and she was hugely patient and she was hugely encouraging and she's just a wonderful person. Did you experience any challenges because you were related? I'm just wondering how other people felt about it or you know did clients know you were related some some people were aware of that not all of them and we never volunteered it we never made a big deal of it at all there was a lot of similarities in the way that we act and behave so I'm sure some people often thought gosh you two are very similar and that family connection would have would have made that uh, you know made sense of that I I suspect reflecting back I joined Mary when I was 20 years old and I was with her till I was 32 inevitably throughout that period of my life I was learning what it takes to be fully committed to full-time work whilst also being partly a party animal so I'm sure there are times has that changed (laughs) has that changed no (laughs) learn to manage it better but I'm sure there'll have been times where she'll have been frustrated with me and probably quite um forgiving with me because of our connection I do wonder if there's probably times where she probably thought you know Hannah's not pulling away or she's not doing a good enough job and I'm going to have to deal with this and I'm going to have to pull her up on a few areas, you know. But on the whole, I've always been quite, I've always had quite high standards. I've always had quite a good work ethic. I'm somebody who's quite committed to what I'm doing. I'm quite passionate about what I do. So I think on the whole, that always overcame any of those situations. And together we grew that business and were, you know, I consider that a, a success. Well, because of her efforts, not mine. But um, but yeah, it was a great experience, a really good experience. And that ended in 2007, is that right? Yes. So during, you know, during those 13 years with Mary, she, she instilled in me that desire to go off and run my own agency. I could see the enjoyment she got out of creating a world that has her mark on it and what it takes to go out and prove yourself to clients. So I, that was a seed that was planted in my head that I always thought long-term, I'd like to have my own agency too. But the dynamic that we had, the situation that we had with her being my auntie meant that I could never break away and set up a competing agency. That would be a complete, you know, kick in the teeth, given everything that she'd done for me. So it was a quite a, a difficult situation. When she decided to retire for, for lots of good reasons, she looked at selling the agency that we, you know, that we were in at that time. And when that sold and when she stepped out, that enabled me, that gave me the freedom then to go launch and start my own agency, which was a godsend. You know, it was 2007. I was full of, oh, I was absolutely full of excitement, energy. I was totally pumped about doing this thing. And what was it that attracted you to doing it for yourself rather than going and finding a, a job in the, you know, in another agency? Oh, for me, it's about the freedom to do it how I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think striving to put my mark on 
what what we're producing and how we do it. I am a bit of a perfectionist. I do really look to to surprise people and and to you know I love that experience when you show things to clients and they just go wow wow that was oh my god that's that's awesome that's what I live for really and having the freedom to do that to create an environment in which you can produce excellence or can produce really mind-blowing stuff I, I knew that I needed to be in control of how that all comes to life not that Mary ever restricted me but I think I just had this desire to create an environment in which other creatives could also have that opportunity to really express themselves to really bring all of their talent to the fore and I just wanted to see if I could make that happen I just wanted mm-hmm. to see if I could it comes back to proving yourself as I, I, I realize I'm saying this a lot <laughs> something psychology wise in this isn't there why am I always proving myself um but it comes back to con- continuing to prove my dad wrong that you know that arty farty crap you can you know it's n- never going to get you far well if I've got my own company doing that and doing it well then I can prove him wrong so you established it with a couple of backers is that right yes I had um some clients who I'd worked with for a good number of years who loved what I did and they were also people that I knew socially um mm-hmm. from before working with them too so we had a very good close relationship we had to let all of those people know that I was leaving the agency when I did. They reached out to me and they said, what are you doing, Han? And I said, well, I'm going to set up an agency. I'm really keen to do that. I want to put my mark on it. They said, we we think you're going to be a huge success. We'd like to we'd like to be part of that. We'd like to be a financial backer in that, if that's an option. Well, I, I needed money. I needed money for, I needed, you know, there's overhead costs of offices there's equipment, there's, you know, you need your all your marketing materials. You do need a certain amount of money just to get going. And I didn't have that to hand. So actually, I kind of thought, well, there's, there's an opportunity. There's a gift horse. So I accepted that offer. And it meant that I needed to set up a limited company in order for their investment to, they basically got shares in the company. So they took a 10% ownership of the of the company through shareholding. And that meant that every month when I paid myself my salary through dividends, they got the equivalent percentage share. So it was a good that allowed you to scale up quickly then. Yes. So I did. I started off with another designer who joined me um, pretty much immediately. Yeah, that investment is was quite critical, actually, I've got to say. And you stopped with that agency or you stopped? You're now, what, 2011, you moved to H&H or setting up H&H. Do you want to talk a little bit about the transition from the one to the other? Yeah, so Rococo Design was the one that I set up in 2007. And whilst you wear many hats when you when you set up a small business, you, you are everything. You know, you're doing the finances, you're doing the marketing, you're doing the delivery, you're doing the HR, you're doing the whole shebang. And one of the most critical things in that industry anyway, as is many others, is is actually getting the leads and the the work in. So networking and getting out there and meeting people is a crucial part of your day to day. I joined the BNI group, which is a business networking group. They have groups all over the US and the UK. They meet once a week, very early morning. And the idea is that within these 
networking groups, you have one person representing a certain sector and you pass each other referrals. So I was lucky in that the Beverly Group, which is where I live, the Beverly B&I Group had a space because they're just somebody had just left for a for a design uh, expert representative. And so I bagsied that slot and I stepped in and I started meeting once a week with all these um, other businesses. And this is where I met my business partner, Helen, my now business mm-hmm. partner, Helen. So I met the B&I group. She was representing leadership and life coaching. That was her specialism. Previous to that, she had been in marketing. She was a marketing expert too. So we had a synergy and we had a similar background going on, but we just hit it off instantly in terms of our characters and our values. And she's just a super feisty, fearless uh, individual. And we just knew, we just knew that we had this similarity, this synergy that we, that we got on really well. And through that networking group where you are encouraged to pass referrals to each other, she actually referred to me a project that she was about to work on. And she was looking for somebody to support with the design aspects of that project. Mm-hmm. So we worked together and it was quite an intense and it was quite a, it was an important corporate piece. It was about a an organisation that was consolidating their pension schemes, 13 of them into one single uh, pension. And we had to produce all of the comms to help with the transition mm-hmm. through what is quite a sensitive topic, what was quite a sensitive um, message and path to be going down. So we, yeah, so we tackled that together, bringing our agencies together to work collaboratively on that and it was just a really great experience you know we 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 got on really well we worked together well the project was a huge success we achieved the outcomes and the objectives that we'd set at the beginning in a very tight time scale and had no no kickback you know there was the potential in this program for there to be union intervention for there to be a lot of kind of dissatisfaction from people in terms of changing their pension schemes but we managed to avoid all of that through the comms programme that we delivered. And we entered it into a, a, a an awards down in London. And we're really surprised to beat off the likes of Camelot, Westminster Council and Vodafone to win this award of best comms programme, best change wow. comms programme. So we got back up to Hull, having had that success. We got together over a cup of tea in the Land of Green Ginger in Hull, said, well, that, that was kind of fun. <laughs> that went kind of well. How about... You know, H had said, why, what do you think about combining our two agencies? And I thought, well, why not? And that's that moved me then into a different arena. I, I moved away from traditional design, brand and marketing, and I moved into internal communications and employee engagement. So it was a subtle shift, but a really, really fantastic one because it's so much more fulfilling to be working in this sphere than the what design. Was it, do you think that about that particular project? that made it so successful because you it sounds to me like a complete minefield how did you make that go so smooth with them it's what makes H&H the kind of work today so it's the psych the understanding of the psychology of the journey people were going to be going on and H's background in coaching in she's you know she has done many courses around psychology NLP so she was thinking about what emotions are people going to be going through as we as we transition from A to B and what will our communications need to 
say or cover off in order to make them feel comfortable, to make them, you know, to, to explain what's happening and why. It's the whole change curve. You know, we, we actually handhold people through those change curves. My challenge within that mix was to ensure that the communications, the way they were presented, the way they look and feel, the way that they brought the message into life was appropriate and was clear and managed to deliver what was important to people in a quick, easy, accessible way. So we combined our skill sets and our strengths. And that's really how H&H continue to this day. It's the strategic thinking. It's the psychology and science underpinning. And it's the expression of that through the creativity that then connects with people and engages people into it. So you need those combinations of skills to effectively move people from A to B in a positive way. So where are you now with H&H? You know, we started this conversation about proving proving to your dad. Do you feel that you've done that? I think by now I might have. Yeah, I think he might be feeling that there's something in it, you know. <laughs> it's now possible to make something of Arty Party Crap. And I'm so proud and pleased to be doing, applying Arty Party uh, talent into something that's so meaningful and impactful on people's lives. That's what gives me great joy, really. Mm. Um, where are we at with H and H? So we're we have a wonderful team of people all across the UK and also in Budapest. We're still on a high growth trajectory. No intention to kind of slow that down at all. There's so many more people that we want to support and help and partner with and work with and brilliant brands around the world doing brilliant things that we know that we can bring um, extra value to and help them grow. And we do really, really have great passion for ensuring that the experience within organisations enables people to be their very best self in their roles that they you know that they're in in these organizations and there's a long way to go with that there's still a long way to go um the corporate world is still in many respects designed to to not embrace everybody's best self so there's yeah so h&h is on a is in a brilliant place we're really really proud of it very grateful for the team that we've got passionate about the work that we do and you know just looking to to be able to reach further across the globe that's the plan and if I was to ask you, you know, about advice to your younger self, what advice would you give to younger Hannah? I'd love to encourage me to not have spent so many years thinking I wasn't good enough, which sounds ridiculous given the path I've just set out. But it's I think the crippling doubt or fear that can that can exist around certain aspects of growing your career or your profile, such as public speaking such as being invited to, you know, share your views on certain things or step out into the public light through press and offer an opinion. I've often shied away from that, but I wish I hadn't. I wish I'd just embraced the fact that whatever knowledge I had at that point was of value some way, you know, that it actually I it's the typical imposter syndrome, isn't it? You know, I'm not good enough. Nobody wants to know what I've got to say. I haven't learned enough yet. I don't know enough yet. I haven't had enough experience. Who am I to say? You know, forget all that. Just forget it. Just go for it. Did you find that that stopped you doing things sometimes? Oh, it stopped me on many occasions, yeah. What's been the impact when you have overcome that imposter syndrome? 
Yeah, public speaking is probably the one where a lot of people relate to this. Um, and it was a there was one time where I realized that the choice you make in what you do with that nervous energy, it can take you one or two ways, can't it? That nervous energy can pull you down and almost make you lose your voice and the shiver, you know, the shake and the quake. You can actually rechannel that. And I discovered this in one instance when I went into a I was going into a um online presentation. And I just used that energy to elevate and lift what I was talking about. I used the energy in a positive way. And it was just that experience to think, oh, my goodness, okay, right. It needn't scupper you. It is, in the end of the day, it's energy. Where do you want to channel it? Where do you want to put it? What do you want to use it for? It just something just clicked for me. And then even now, I still get nervous now going in to do pictures, presentations. I can go to an event, be a speaker at an event. But I no longer feel like I'm at the mercy of that pulling me down. I can use it to lift me up. I agree. It's the it's it's just an energy, isn't it? You know, when you hear someone speak who's not got that energy, I always think people who are too confident and don't have that nervousness, that's not a good thing. And if you speak to plenty of actors and people who, you know, jump up on stage for a living, they still say they feel some energy and they think that's right, that yeah. they should, because because it gives them that you could see it in some the authenticity isn't it i think it's the authenticity mm. of it you, do you know what if you're not feeling any of that adrenaline then there's something wrong isn't there you're yeah. obviously not enjoying that anymore no so final question this obviously isn't easy one for you given what you do for a living trap line or you know title for your story do the arty farty crap brilliant so thank you so much, Hannah. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. So thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Mel. That was a lot of fun. That was such a fun conversation with Hannah and I really loved her, the way that she chose to follow her heart and her passion and really do what made her happy and made her heart sing in her career. I was really struck by the conversation around the power of work experience and how that can have a, an enormous effect on young people and particularly if you give them something meaningful and interesting to do as part of that work experience. And I really was interested perhaps as a psychologist in that interplay of psychology in understanding organisational change and how you can use video and internal comms uh, to really make sure that you're hitting people with the right messages in a way that they're really going to understand them and take them on board. And the final thing was this uh, um, idea of imposter syndrome and how actually that nervous energy that you get when you're doing something unfamiliar and challenging can really channel that energy and turn it to some use and how it gives you a sort of life and passion when you're talking about something that you really love. So yeah, thank you so much, Hannah. It was such a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Secret Resume. If you did, remember to like, share, comment and subscribe as that helps people like you find people like us.